you pray with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, you are the creator of heaven and earth and all that lives. You are our creator. By your spirit, you gave us life, a life intended to glorify you. In Adam's rebellion, we turned from you and chose our own path, a path that leads to death. But Lord, in your mercy, you gave us your only son to die in our place for our sins so that we might be redeemed. Through Jesus' resurrection, you promised us the hope of a home in heaven. Reveal yourself in this time together, in your word and in us. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, we're in the final part of our teaching series called Famous Last Words, a study in Revelation. In fact, we're in the final two chapters of the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible. These two chapters are so dense with hope and promise for believers that, that I decided to divide these two chapters each in two. Uh, so that uh, we'll have a four-week series to finish things up. So let me just show you what we're going to be doing. I'll put this up here so you can see it. Uh, today we're doing a new life, Revelation chapter 21 and 1 through 8. Next week we'll be looking at the new Jerusalem, the following week the new Eden, and finally as we end the new beginning, because as Revelation comes to the end, it's really only the beginning. And so uh, that's how we're going to study this. That's how we're going to lay it out. Today we're starting with part one, the new life. And we're going to begin with the reading of God's word from Revelation chapter 21 and verses 1 through 8. If you have your Bible with you, you might want to read along with that. Uh, in fact, I encourage you to do so. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So when we read a passage like this, it brings a whole lot of questions to mind, which is why we I felt we needed to divide some of this up so we can deal with them. I want to talk about five things that are raised here in this passage this morning. I'm not going to necessarily do it in the order that they appear because it might be a little easier or a little more logical to do them a little bit out of sequence. Um, 
But Jesus begins, and this is a central or a key verse in this part. Jesus says, verse 5, Behold, I am making all things new. Behold, I am making all things new. And the first question that I think we need to answer is, okay, why do we need a new life? Making all things new. The second question is, why do we need a new earth if we're making all things new? The third is, what will that new life be like? The fourth I want to ask this morning is, what happens if we don't choose new life? And at the very end, I want to come back to this statement that Jesus makes, that he is making everything new. And we want to ask, what does that mean when God is making everything new? We're going to leave the question of the new heaven part out until next week when we talk about the new Jerusalem. So if you wonder why we're not talking about that this morning, that is why. So the first question on my list anyway is, why do I need new life? Why do we need all this new stuff? Can't I just have what I have? Can't I just be what I am in heaven? Can't I just go on like things are normal? This is a key question for humanity. Why do we need new lives? It goes back to what happened at the beginning of the Bible. In the book of Genesis, Earth's first parents, Adam and Eve, they had it good. They really had it good. They lived in a garden state. I'm not talking about New Jersey here. They lived in a garden that was so perfect that it lacked nothing, absolutely nothing. They had everything they needed, everything they wanted. They even had jobs to do. They were to work the garden and to take care of the garden. And they had a close-up and very personal relationship with God until they didn't. Because of their own rebellion, and because of their sin, they lost the privilege of living in such a beautiful place. And they were banished. And that direct relationship with God, with God grew distant. It wasn't God who moved away. It was Adam and Eve. Sin, therefore, was passed from generation to generation. And, and you know, nobody was left untouched. In Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's nobody who is without sin. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, who was one of Israel's leaders, that very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. It's like he's saying, in your current state, led by your sin nature, and separated from the holiness of God by your sin you can't enter heaven. It's a holiness problem. Our unrighteousness comes into conflict with God's holiness. But God hasn't forgotten his creation. And he makes a way for us to be restored. He made a new way through Jesus. And there is that confrontation that happens on the cross where our unrighteousness is dealt with, where God's holiness pays the price for our sin through Jesus. His sacrifice allows our sins to be forgiven and even erased. When we come to believe, we begin this process of being made new, 
that Jesus is talking about. He talks about it actually not just in Revelation, but in other places as well. And we're being made new, first of all, spiritually, from the inside out. The coming of the heavens or the new heavens and the new earth that are promised in Revelation, that righteousness is made complete. We start, you know, I think sometimes we, we treat this initial relationship with Jesus, this initial belief with Jesus as that's the be all and end all. All I've got to do is pray a little prayer and then I'm, it's all done and everything's okay and I can just go do whatever I want and life is copacetic. But it's only the beginning. That first step of faith is only the beginning. And there's a whole lot more that comes with that. We are being made new we are told. There is a word in the Hebrew, in the book of Revelation, that comes at the end of God's creating. He finishes creating and he says, ooh, it is good. <laughs> Except the, the word good is, is a word in Hebrew, is, is the word is tov. And tov means a little more than just good. It can mean beautiful, but, but it also means something along the line of complete or functioning in the way that I intended for it to function. So it's not just good. It's good in the sense that it's doing what I intended to do. You know, that's, that's what it's saying right there. And, uh, and that's really important. So, so when we are being made new, the idea is that we're being taken to this state that we were originally intended to be. We're, we're taken to this place where we are functioning the way God intended, where we're living the way God intended. And yes, that is good. And that is something really beautiful. There is a, a kind of a, a thirst that we have spiritually throughout our whole lives. You ever notice that? That, that there's there's this hunger. If you're seeking after God, there's a hunger. Hunger creates more hunger for God. It's like the more time you spend in the Bible, the more time you're reading God's Word, the more you want to read it because it just draws you in. The time you spend in prayer and meditation becomes uh, sometimes those times where you just don't want it to stop. You ever get to that point where there's that, that sense of God's presence and you just want to stay there in God's presence it's part of that spiritual thirst that he created inside of us. You know, we know that we're in Christ, but we also know that we are not perfect. Not by a long shot. We know instinctively that there's a whole lot more to come. Well, when we get into this part of Revelation, this is it. This is when that whole lot more to come comes. When Christ comes, when his kingdom comes, we will be made new completely, totally. Jesus says here in verse 3, I am making everything new. And he knows our spiritual thirst. And I love this. It says, to the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. This draws me back. It makes me remember the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. You know, she comes and she's getting her water and has to come every day and comes at a time when nobody else is there because of her lifestyle. She's mocked for who she is and so she shows up alone. 
And she has this conversation with Jesus. And Jesus tells her, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. This thing, this spiritual relationship that we're in, it starts with believing in Christ. And it finishes with the spring in the New Testament, in New Jerusalem. We need a new life because of sin's corruption. But it's made complete at the coming of the new heaven and the new earth. Which begs the question, why do we need a new earth? What's going on with that? I once borrowed a friend's car to drive to a party when I was in college. Um, it was a really big event. I lived off campus. We lived in a little cabin on the beach, which was kind of fun. And, but it was a distance from the college, and I didn't have a car at that time. And I didn't want to miss out on this party. And so I borrowed Mike's car. And, and Mike left the battery out of his car because there was some problem with the alternator. And so, you know, whenever we wanted to go somewhere, we'd put the battery in, and then we would drive, and then we would take the battery out, or at least disconnect it, you know? And so on this particular night, it was pouring rain, and I borrowed his car. So I got the battery out of the trunk, and I opened the hood of the car, and I put the battery into the car, and I got it all hooked up, and the car started, and great, I went off to the party. Well, later, I was sitting at a table at this party, and a friend of mine looked over at me and said, hey, I think you have a hole in your pants. And I stood up, and I looked down, and there were my new jeans with about a foot of the front completely gone, completely missing, at a very inconvenient place. It's like I had a huge window and was standing there in my underwear. You know, it was pretty bad. It seemed that I had spilled battery acid on myself when I had picked the battery up out of the trunk and put it into the car. And if not for the soaking rain when I was installing it, I think I, I might have been pretty badly burned. So I was blessed in that way. Sin is like battery acid. You get some on you and it begins to eat away. And it corrupts and it eats away at life. It eats away at everything it touches. The things around us are affected by our sin. And nature is corrupted and polluted by the very fact that we're in it. Because we're corrupt and polluted by our sin. I was just reading that last year they were making a new list of extinct species and they, they came up with a list of at least 560 species in the last 50 years that no longer exist. Now, it's likely a whole lot more than that because it's a lot easier to see something that is than to not see something, right? When it disappears. Our inhabiting the earth changes it and not necessarily for the better. And that's why it says in Scripture that the earth is crying out for redemption. The battery acid of sin is eating away at our new pair of genes. The world is broken, and it needs redeemed. When God created the world, after his act of creation, he says, it's tov, it's good, it's complete. It's functioning the way I want it to function. It's doing everything I want it to do. It's working perfectly. But the world as it exists now is not tov. 
It's not working the way that God intended it to. It needs redeeming. So we need a new earth. By the time we get to this part in Revelation, the old earth has already passed away. It's gone. It's being destroyed, and it's being remade. You know, when we look at that destruction, we think of fire, but also think of the imagery of fire throughout Scripture. Fire cleanses, and fire often makes holy and is part of the setting apart process of God in holiness. The earth is being made tov, complete, and it's being remade the way God intended it. Well, if that's the case, what will our new life be like? What's it going to be like there? What's it going to be like? How am I going to live there? How do I fit into a place like this? I think we're going to be sitting around on clouds with harps saying praise God many times over and over again. And maybe if we're lucky, we'll get to sing in the choir. That doesn't sound like a heaven I'm particularly that interested in, really. That doesn't sound like the heaven I understand from Scripture either. But that, I think, is a popular misconception. When the next phase of new life comes, it's going to be a radical break from this life. There is going to be a time when it will satisfy the longing of your heart. All those things you've been longing for, all that peace in you that says, hey, something's not quite there yet. I'm not complete yet. Your heart is longing for something better. And you realize that you need a fuller redemption. Now, you are positionally redeemed in Christ. When Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross for your sin, he paid the price of your sin. And when you come to faith in Christ, that redemption becomes yours. But it's not fully realized yet. And we all feel that. But when we enter into the kingdom of heaven, when we enter into the new heaven, that will be fully realized. Our chains are broken now. Our sin is forgiven now. Our ability to live for God as he intended is seriously jacked up by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit as we live through our lives. But someday, our redemption will be fully complete. And we'll be tov. We'll be as God intended. Philippians 3.21 tells us that, and this is one of my favorite parts, that we will have glorified bodies. Now, that's kind of cool. It says, my body will be like Jesus' body after the resurrection. Newly made, better than the original. Made the way God intended. Restored, glorified like Jesus appeared to his apostles. He could be seen. He could be touched. He could eat food. It was a real body. But then there's this other aspect. You know, we see Jesus, we glimpse Jesus in a different way in, in the glorification of his body in the transfiguration as it took place on Mount Tabor. And as they looked on, they saw that it was something more than just a body. It was something spiritual. Glorified. 
That's what we're promised. That's what we're told. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but it sounds pretty good. So what's it going to be like to live out life in, in a place just like this? Well, here's one of our favorite parts. I think we read this at pretty much every funeral, uh, reassuring. We, we think of this as applied to heaven, but it's really applied to the new heaven, to the new heaven and the new earth, this new place that Jesus is creating. And, and we recognize that heaven is probably a whole lot like this. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. No more death, mourning, crying, pain. Why? Because that's the old way of doing things. That's the way that we used to do things. That's not the way God intends for us to be doing things. You know, I think about it, all the issues that we care about now will be finished. They'll all be gone. Things we fight about, the things we protest about, there won't be any more abortion. There won't be any more murder. And, and scores of other things. I like this that's suggested here. It says, who will wipe away your tears? It says, he will wipe away every tear. Who is this? This is God himself. This is the Lord Jesus himself. This is not some lowly assistant who's hired to come and wipe your tears for you. This is not even some angel. This is God himself wiping away every tear because he will be present. Now, we know God is always present. We think of God's omnipresence, that he's everywhere at the same time. He's everywhere at once. He's always present. But, but this is in a very personal kind of way. It's close and it's personal. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. You know, back in Exodus, the people built a tabernacle on God's orders to be placed where God revealed himself before his people. And in the very, that gets realized in the very last chapter of the book of Exodus. And in fact, even in the last few paragraphs, it, it becomes complete. And here's what it says happens when they get done. Then a cloud covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The experience of the presence of God in the new heaven and in the new Jerusalem will be far more than this tabernacle experience. You know, in the tabernacle, there was, they knew God was present. They saw a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But that wasn't God. That was just a sign or an indication of his presence. Even Moses didn't dare enter in when the Shekinah or the Shekinah glory filled the tent. But in the New Jerusalem, there won't be any tent. There won't be anything separating us. 
There won't be any holy of holies in which we're forbidden to enter. There'll be no need for a high priest to intercede for us because God himself will be present with his people in an entirely new way that we have never experienced before. That's what it will be like. That's just a tiny taste of what it will be like. This is given as a promise to those who are victorious. God says you will inherit all of this. Well, first it refers back to the beginning of the book of Revelation, doesn't it? Where God promised those who would be victorious would gain these promises, uh, these seven churches that he was originally writing to. But we know by extension that it also falls to us that we who are victorious, we will also inherit these things. It's there for anyone who will follow Christ. But what happens if we don't choose new life? Revelation 2 or 21 and verse 8 says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fire lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. It's hard to read that. It's hard to look at that. As we said a few weeks ago when we talked about hell, God continues to offer salvation over and over throughout history. He invites everyone to turn and to follow him. If only they'll believe and follow. And there is no one who is beyond redemption. If all would come, there wouldn't even be the need for a discussion about hell. But not all will come. Many will turn away. I want to return to Jesus' word to finish up when he said, I am making all things new. What did he mean by all things? I think he meant all things. All things. Restoring his original order to creation. Completing what he began in us when we believed and began following Jesus. I get the impression that nothing that has been created won't be recreated. And we read the Bible as a, a journey from creation to recreation, to new beginnings. This is a new place. It's a place of hope. You know, when we die, we hope for heaven, don't we? But Revelation tells us to hope beyond heaven. Hope beyond heaven to a new heaven where God, the Alpha and the Omega, dwells among his people. Our hope is not in a place. Our hope is in God himself through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What part is our vision? What part of this vision is ours to live? Simply spelled out by Jesus in answer to a question, he says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second commandment is this, love your neighbor as yourself. 
In other words, we follow Christ with all we've got. And we stop treating heaven as some kind of an escape hatch. You know, we do that. It's like we're, we just can't wait to run away from this world. That's not why God put us here. What about that neighbor? What about those others? The ones we are called to serve. And all the things we're called to do. There's so many things. We need to live for Christ in this life every day until he comes. Heavenly Father, we are glad and we rejoice. With joy we draw deeply from your well of salvation. Though the world has been gripped by trouble since early days and life has often been short and tormented, you have given us a vision of a day beyond the pain. A day when the heavens and the earth will be new again. A day when the sound of weeping will give away to delight. A time when all creation will live in peace. Help us to hold to that vision whenever our world is shaken. Strengthen us for the telling of your truth and for keeping to your path so that we might not become weary in doing what is right. But through faith and endurance, we may gain this new heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.